Bujun and Dinoe Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Well, welcome to the Native Seed Pod. We're so honored to have you on our episode, on our show this season. It's uh, early October. We just had our first fall rains. It's harvest time. And we're so excited to speak with you about your extraordinary Native foods work as Ohlone chefs and uh, activists. So please uh, introduce yourselves for our audiences. Orshatulhi Kanakra Kat Vince Medina. So hello, my name is Vince Medina. Um, that's I said that in the Chochenyo language. That's the language of my family here in the East Bay. And I want to start off just by acknowledging who I am and where I'm from. So my name is again Vincent Medina, and I'm the great grandson of Mary Archuleta, who is um, a respected elder in our family. She's a very special person to me. She passed away, but I know she's guiding much of this work. And she was born on the Pleasanton Rancheria, and she um, she was able to carry our culture forward and to make sure that our culture our culture survived and that we can still practice these ways today. I'm the grandson of. Louis Medina and Bonnie Medina, and the son of Tina Medina and Vincent Medina Sr. And I come from an area called Hawking, which is um, along the banks of San Leandro Creek and San Lorenzo Creeks in southern Oakland, San Leandro, Hayward. That's where, um, where I grew up. That's where I'm from, and that's where our family's old area is. I'm also a member of the Moakmaaloni tribe, and I serve on the tribal council representing my family's lineage. And I'm here today with my partner, Louis, who will introduce himself. And we do this work together for Makamham, revitalizing our Ohlone foodways and sharing these back with our families. Inkato Makam Karakat Louis, Kaitmai Kakunta Huya Achista. My name is Louis Trevino, and I'm Rumsen Ohlone. Uh, I come from the Carmel Valley, Monterey area, and I'm happy to be here with my partner, Vince Medina, to discuss the work that we do together and with our communities and families. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's so rare and so special to hear the first languages of this land. Thank you to hear the Chochenyo. And I was born in your territory, in Chochenyo territory here in the East Bay, and uh, have been a big um, lover and fan of the, the Carmel and Monterey and Big Sur area where your people are from in the Rumsen area. Can you say a little bit about your respective languages and the work you've been doing to revitalize these languages? Definitely. Um, so Lewis and I, we both work really extensively and we work with a lot of effort with our families and our communities. To, um, to work to revive our languages so that we're able to speak them in our communities again with fluency so that one day we hope that everybody in our families are in our tribes are speaking 
um, our languages at home as as our first language. That's our our ultimate goal is to have our people speaking our language as a first language again one day. And our history um, is directly connected, though, to why our language for a time declined and why we lost speakers. And as a result of that, for both of us, um, for about 70 years, our communities um, didn't speak our languages. And this is directly tied to our history with uh, outsiders coming in and suppressing our traditional culture. Um, both my family and Lewis's family were enslaved in the California missions and my family at Mission San Jose and Mission Dolores and Lewis's family at Mission Dolores and Mission Carmel. And because of that, there, there was physical abuse and threats and suppression that would be there if our people spoke our languages. However, people didn't give up. They, they kept speaking and we know that throughout the Mexican Rancho period where there was systematic discrimination and violence against our people as well as throughout the um, American period well into about 80 years into the American period our people still kept speaking our languages and they it's because our we know our people knew the worth of these of these ways and these words and Know, this, our languages are beautiful and they're rooted in who we are and they convey our culture, our oldest view of ourselves, our oldest um, identity is, is embedded in, in our languages. And so, you know, as a result of, of all of this act of suppression with every different group that came in and tried to take and to diminish what we, what we have, our traditional culture, um, in the 1930s, the last fluent speakers of both of our languages passed away. But before they passed away, in an effort to ensure that our languages could be spoken again one day, these people made a very deliberate effort to record our languages so that when it was safer and Ohlone people were under better conditions, you know, one day our people could pick these things up and relearn them. And I want to be specific about the people who recorded um, this. And here in the East Bay, it was um, primarily three people, um, a woman named Angela de los Colos, um, a man named Jose Guzman, and um, a woman named Susanna Nichols, who's um, the sister to my great-great-great-grandmother, actually. So that's here in the East Bay and in Carmel Valley. It's primarily Isabel Meadows. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. And our language has a really similar history of decline, also tied to the same causes of decline that Vince was mentioning for Chochenyo language. Today, there's just one person in my extended family who remembers hearing our language when she was a young girl. Um, she's in her upper 80s now. And so for her to see those things put away um, during, her during her childhood when her grandparents' generation passed, um, and to now see these things be picked up again and come out and be celebrated in a way that they weren't um, during her young childhood is a beautiful thing. And she's so supportive of all of this work. It's important also that we remember that those people who had our language also had our foods. And she remembers those same people practicing these foods and eating these things and gathering these things. And so she saw all of these things decline, and now she's seeing them all be strengthened and revitalized. Mm.
Powerful. And you mentioned already there that link between languages and foods. And now so much of your work, you're becoming world-renowned, um, just having spoken and cooked in uh, Italy. Um, you are getting renowned um, through Mak Amham, your Ohlone native cuisine food work. Um, and you have we've been very blessed to eat some of your food at last year's harvest event we had, and it was so delicious. We are still talking talking about it. It was so nourishing, aesthetically gorgeous, um, deeply uh, connected to the land, the different textures and tastes and colors. So you're really revitalizing, but you're almost reinventing, right? Um, using a modern uh, processes to use your ancient seeds and foods. So if you can share a little bit more about this, this interest, and not that it's a shift, it's language and food, and how you're feeding your people again um, these foods that also were not in the diet for probably the same amount of time, right? Maybe 70 years, 80 years. That's right. Uh, that's, that's exactly right. And the two, as Lewis mentioned, are very much tied together. And my great-grandmother, who was a speaker of, of not um, Chochenyo language, but because our community shifted um, to Plains Miwok language at, at a point because of the, um, the connections that uh, in our family um, from the Plains Miwok area coming into and marrying into Ohlone families. As a result of that, um, uh, my great-grandmother, she spoke um, the Plains Miwok language. It's called the Keek language, which is the Plains Miwok language. And so um, she was also the generation of my family that we're, we're sure uh, continued our traditional gathering methods. And there's extensive stories by by a lot of people about the foods that she liked to gather and the places that she would gather them, even in modern settings around the East Bay, because she was in her home. So, with these these things, it's important to remember that um, how how tied in to one another food and and language and culture is. But you know what we want is we want. We want our, our entire identity back in, in a holistic way, you know, beyond just food or, or language. You know, we want to be able to reconstruct that old world and the things that were taken from our ancestors, because those things that were taken from our ancestors are the things that are taken from our collective people today as well. You know, when we're lacking these things, we know exactly why, why we're lacking them. And, and it can be painful to know you know, why these things were suppressed, especially knowing that our people were, you know, just here, you know, in their home, living a good life, you know, and that people came in and took things from them and, you know, and that weren't theirs to take and, and then suppressed everything that, that was theirs, that they, that they valued and cared about, and then actively worked to diminish those things. When you know those, that story, and you know that those people are your direct, you know, family, your direct ancestors, it makes you feel compelled to do something, you know, to be able to reverse the things that happened and see this all come back into our world again. But we also have to be realistic to the fact that we're we're living in different times. You know, we're the same people, we have those same roots, but we're living in a in a different time. We're living in 2018 right now. And the technology that we have avail around us and the tools that we have around us are radically different things than than our ancestors, you know, had available. And 
you know, how do we reconcile with those two things? You know, how do we keep a traditional identity while also living in a fast-paced urban world of, you know, social media and cell phones and, you know, um, you know, global globalization and all of this stuff around us? You know, we unless we're living completely isolated away from everybody, you know, we can't be able to live in that old pre-contact time, you know, fully. So one of the things that Lewis and I talk about a lot and that I like to imagine, and this is a, a, a dream of mine, but is to imagine what our traditional culture would look like in contemporary times if we were never invaded, if we were never, if there was never a conquest of our land, if we were never, if we never had things stolen from us. But, you know, instead imagine that the outs that we were able to embrace the outside world on our own terms if we were able to be able to take on things from outside and to make them our, ours while keeping our cultural aesthetics our values our religious um, um, connections to things and making sure that those values are, are alive and strong making sure that our, our food and our the taste that we have that those things are promoted our language is strong and then see these things, you know, be able to to be adopted into our culture by our people. I often wonder what would that look like? And we know that even though people had to still, things were still imposed on our people, we know that there's things that that were brought here that our people took to because they, they liked them. Like for an example, you see a lot of these glass beads, you know, in our baskets and you know, that's something that's not traditional, but because it's something that's beautiful, you know, it's something that's culturally beautiful and it's something that our people liked, you know, and even when the Spanish weren't around, our people still liked those beads, you know, and and then we wove baskets with them, you know, our people and, and, and created things that were traditional, but also slightly, you know, um, something that's 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 different, that's not ours, but it became ours in that method. You know, the same thing goes for different foods. Our people like definitely like like coffee. Like there's stories about how much our people like coffee and 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 stuff like that, you know, and I think if we live in a modern time, what would that look like if we were able to embrace these things on our own? And when we're working for our the revival of our languages with our families, you know, and we adopt new phrases or new words, you know, we're 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 doing that in a modern time, you know. When we, you know, are on Twitter and we ha like all of a sudden feel something and then we write a hashtag in Chochenyo or something, you know, like that's a modern like thing, you know, and it's like the people who are meant to be seeing it are seeing it, you know, um, when we are making our food and we embrace something that might not necessarily be exactly as it was in the old days, but it's still rooted in those same flavors and tastes, but it's it's also something that's modern you know that's our modern day food and because we're a lonely people doing these things you know in so many ways it's us determining our destiny and to me that's an extension of our sovereignty you know being able to decide as our own people you know where do we want our future to go and what do we want this to look like and you know we want whatever we're doing to be rooted in those old ways and that means that there's rules that means that there's things that we have to do and there's rules that we have to follow you know we want everything that we do and make to be recognizable to our ancestors you know if we're making a dish we want those flavors to be recognizable to our ancestors 
you know, if we're doing something with like artistic, you know, we we want those things to have the aesthetics that our ancestors would 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 like. But when we do these things together, you know, it, it makes us it creates and reimagine in a lot of ways what our traditional culture is in a modern way that that that's real. It's not just simply a tokenized thing that we're just doing, but it's something that we are able to to do ourselves, but it's rooted in those old ways. And, you know, I feel like we have a lot of pride in that because we're modern people as well, you know, and that's how we are able to express those traditional ways in a modern in a modern fashion. Beautiful. It really also indicates that you will have a strong future uh, because people, when they think of Native people, it's almost always in the past. And you're bringing it very much to the present and also connecting it to a, a strong future, a modernity, an indigenous modernity, an indigenous future based on your own sovereign goals. So that's really powerful. And I remember um, being at a meeting once with a number of different Ohlone representatives and uh, and marie Sayers got up in her wonderfully, you know, uh, exuberant way and said, the language is not dead. My daughter, Canyon, texts uh, and does social media with Vince Medina in the Ohlone languages. They're texting back and forth and using social media and bringing, you know, this, our ancient language using these modern technologies. So I think your work really exemplifies that beautifully. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. Vincent and Lewis, you just returned from the World Food Festival, Terra Madre, Salone del Gusto in Turin, Italy. Tell me about your experience there. What was that like? So Lewis and I just got back from a hugely successful international conference that's run by Slow Foods International, which is a group that is an international organization that... that is um, promotes um, healthy eating and the rights that every human being has for healthy foods and sustainable foods um, taking um, and 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 making sure that our that everybody stays away from gmos and these foods that are harmful to our to the planet and it works in a lot of ways to promote solidarity between one another on an international level so that we can see our commonalities instead of our differences and and they always do such a wonderful job at, at organizing this biennial conference called um, called Terra Madre. And Terra Madre, it's it's a huge um, 
mixture of a food fair, but a lecture series, and um, uh, there's field trips. It takes over the whole city of Torino and even the the the, the region around it, and. And it's all focused on food and food security and food sovereignty and making sure that heritage foods are protected. And, and then it's also just a lot of fun. Everybody gets together and eats a whole lot. And, and there's every region of the, of the world that is attempted to be represented in this place on an international level. And tens of thousands of people, I don't know how many people that um, come and, and participate in this from all over the globe. So we... Um, we came, and it was uh, Lewis, myself, uh, under the the banner of Slow Food Turtle Island, which we are proudly delegates of, and we uh, we we're proud to go under the banner of Slow Food Turtle Island because that by itself is very much an extension of of indigenous sovereignty, especially being able to um to work together with other american indian people because that's what the organization is for it's for american indian people um as well as people from canada and mexico um and we we march together and we we go together in the, the under the banner slow food turtle island so that we're able to um not necessarily have to um, identify and, and, and participate as delegates of the United States, Mexico, or Canada because we know that our people have been there before those countries have existed. And so um, we that's a, a way to express that in a modern way, in, in a way with where we're collaborative with other indigenous chefs. So we, um, we were fortunate to be able to go and we worked with many indigenous um, chefs and food activists and farmers and traditionalists and so many others who were there and um, got a lot accomplished. And um, thank you, Melissa, for all your work to, because I know that you're very um, intensely involved in all of the slow food, um, the slow food work. So thank you for all your efforts as well to make that so successful because we, um, we're definitely just writing off of the energy of that right now and so happy to be back home as well in our place. Oh, well, I'm so glad it was so successful for you both. And, you know, representing your traditions in that global arena is so important because many people don't know much about Native Americans, American Indians in general, less about California Indians, and then Ohlone people. To have Ohlone chefs there, I think, was very spectacular and, and, and so well received. Thank you. I think it's also really, really important that when we let people know in our families where we were going, what we were doing on this international level, it made people so happy and proud of this. And for many people who are older in our families, in their early childhood, in their young adulthood even, they were put down a lot because of this identity, because of this Ohlone identity. And despite all of that weight, they still kept those things and they treasured those things and they gave us that pride and that identity. And so when we go and we do these things and we're able in some way to elevate our identity, our culture, our families, it's just a healing thing too. That's That's very true. Yeah, and when we were there, uh, we, we definitely got the visibility that that we we wanted and then and then some because we we uh you know we went there with the 
the primary purpose was to bring visibility to our people, you know, and we're an underrepresented tribe, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're a relatively small tribe, you know, and we're in the midst of all of these people, you know, like there's so many people, you know, and, and, you know, in the big scheme of things, we're, our, our tribe is, you know, our population is very small, but that doesn't mean that, that we're not here. And it, it means that we just have to sometimes work harder and find very, intentional and imaginative ways to be able to share this story and to share how deep these roots run you know and everybody you know who who has a connection to this place cares you know and so being able to to tell people about that and to help people understand how real that all of this culture is and how meaningful it is and to see the response i gotta say the italian people were amazing you know like the response that they gave us and the the um just the the kindness that that was there was was just so heartwarming and that kind of stuff you know that's how change happens is through real dialogue of being able to tell our story you know paired with some really delicious food you know and then and then people see when you when you could hear and their guard is down and people are just talking and then people can really hear with open hearts about these things that's where that's where I think a lot of that change really, really comes from, you know, and then, and then those things make policy and those things make different things that will lead in, in a direction that we actually feel, you know, and it's good to be able to do that. Yes, one of our early slogans of indigenous Terramadre was, eat your heritage, mm-hmm. right? You've got to eat your heritage. And at first some people go, what are you talking about? But when you taste, for you, the foods that you um, created, whether that's acorn or venison meat or huckleberries, and I'd love to hear the menu of what you cooked there because it sounded absolutely stunning. Uh, when you taste those foods that come directly from your ancestral lands, you really can get the full um, full weight of that, that the meaning of that food and the heritage of that food. So if you could say a little bit more about the specific foods you shared um, in Italy and the same ones you're sharing here at Cafe Aloni, it'd be wonderful to hear about that. So at a pop-up dinner there, which had 200 people, we prepared a venison stew um, and we made a venison stew that included morel mushrooms, chanterelle mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, and porcini mushrooms uh, that were smoked. And we brought with us yerba buena and bay laurel from Hulkin area here in Vince's family's homeland. Um, and it was very well received. We cooked it very slow. It was a five-hour preparation, and the flavors were deep and rich. And like you are saying, the food's they take on these earthy flavors, and the colors of them are also earthy, and they resemble our places. And those foods that we gather, when we gather them in the way that we're instructed, we do so in alignment with the way that our people from before did these things. And so when we get to taste these things that we've prayed over and that we've prepared with good intentions and lots of care, um, it really feeds us and nourishes us in more ways than just the physical. Yeah, that's really beautifully said, and it's it's true that these foods are rooted. You know, we say that these foods are full of prayer because they are. You know, we we don't do this just for some kind of tokenization of oh, you know, like there's some Indian people like you know saying something. You know, but we we do this because it's real. You know, and and it's not for show. You know, it's it's because we care about about these plants and 
they're, they come from areas that we're directly descended from. And so because of that, there's an obligation that's there to be able to protect and, and care for these, these places. And so, um, you know, with that, that means that we, we, when we gather, and we gather often, we'll gather about twice a week, and they're always in very, very specific areas. Um, when, we, when, we're in, when we're in Lewis's homeland, we'll gather in his villages down there in the Carmel Valley and places where there's very rich um, bay laurel and yerba buena and um, like some of the, the places even smell like like yerba buena when you enter. Um, and in my area here in the East Bay, my family's area, we'll, we'll gather in areas where we know um, you know, there's all these modern stories overlap with with really ancient stories, and and it's exciting to be able to to do those things and be in those places because when we're together, that means that we also get to do other things like rename the landscape back in our language, take away those Western names, and start re returning back to our traditional names. You know, reconnecting with the spirituality of our land and making sure that we remember our creation story because we can see the mountain that we were created on you know not far from where we all live and you know remembering the stories that that go back into those um those beginning times and so many of the food connections they overlap and they're there because these foods are are spiritual foods for us too and we want to show as much respect as we can and that, that means that the way to do that with our families is just to, to be together and do, do those things together. And then as more and more people do this, it's like we're collectively just getting back into that old way of doing things. And then, then it's almost like, like it didn't happen, you know, a colonization almost. <laughs> then, then often, though, we'll get somebody walking by and say, what are you doing? And then we'll just say, you know, just... Indian stuff. <laughs> Indian stuff. Yeah. So do you, um, out of all the acorns species, all the oak trees in our rich land, in your rich land, uh, do you have a favorite acorn that you like to harvest? Or um, I know there's many that are on the trees right now. And um, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your relationship with some of the oak trees. Mm-hmm. Well, I know for Lewis's area, it's tan oak. Mm-hmm. Tan oak. Mm-hmm. And we, we definitely um, are trying to make sure that the tan oak groves are protected. And so we're talking about relocating some of the Carmel Valley tan oaks to the East Bay. So that's something that we'd like to see eventually. Yeah, in the Carmel Valley, um, our tan oaks have been affected by sudden oak death. And so the adults are browning. They're still producing acorns. It's sort of like half of a tree will be affected and the other half will continue to produce acorns for a few years. Um, But saplings are immune to it until a certain age. So we're talking about transplanting them here in the East Bay um, where they'll be safe from sudden oak death. Um, So that's an effort that we're undertaking very soon to protect that preferred acorn. Uh, for us here in the East Bay, um, we're, we're acorn people as well. So so what ha- we happen to eat nowadays is a lot of valley oak acorn. And, um, you know, back in the old days, you know, I, there there would have been a lot of preferences. And I'm not exactly sure what, what it, 
what like our direct ancestors' favorite one would be. But today we eat a lot of Valley Oak acorn. Mm -hmm. I also, on a personal level, really like black oak. I think it's very tasty, and blue oak is very good too. Yeah, um, yeah it's very smooth, and I like it chunky personally. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but that's. I bet it's really interesting. Yeah, we make, um, but one of the exciting things too, and one of the things that we, we serve on our menu that when it's seasonal is um, our people would make something called a chatole. And it's an atole, which is like a corn dish, but our people made a what's called a chatole. So it's uh, taking the chocheno sound with our We're very breathy in so, <laughs> our language. So we... Um, and then uh, the way it's written is H-A-T-O-L-E. And, and um, we, make, we make an acorn chatole, which is uh, um, acorn flour, um, hazelnut flour, um, and, um, and hazelnut milk. And it's sweetened with a little bit of honey. And it's just so good just on. And so, you know, that's another one of those modern day recipes. All the flavors are things that are recognizable to our family from before. You know, but it's it's um, it's definitely something that that we that we enjoy for breakfast as well, and that we know our young, like the kids in our tribe enjoy. You know, and they like to eat that. And then, little by little, you know, then you could take away that that um, sweetness and just get to the pure acorn. And then, right there is where um, those 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 super traditional foods are. So about the menu, because you were asking, at Cafe Ohlone uh, by Makamham, we're tucked in this small space in the back of the University Press Books. And we feel really good about the reasons why we're back there. And it's because in a lot of ways, it's a safe place. You know, we want this place to be an expression of our Ohlone culture, but we also want it to be a place where our family feels safe and our, and our community feels like they can really be themselves. And... The way that the cafe is, is set up is that there's this really exciting bookstore that we're sitting in right now, and it's um, University Press Books. And it's this really quirky, really dynamic, uh, exciting bookstore that has a lot of, just a lot of energy, and a good energy. And you have to walk through this bookstore, and then you get into um, this back patio, which is covered with... Um, with our aesthetics, with a huge, you walk in and you see a huge basket mural of our, of one of our traditional baskets with abalone and, and clamshell beads hanging. In about two weeks, it will be, um, there'll be a long reclaimed redwood table that will um, be a centerpiece. And that's in homage to um, many of our villages for me and my family in the East Bay Hills and for Lewis and his family in the Carmel Valley. Um, we also um, have Thule and Bay Laurel that's, that's spread throughout with strings of lights and native plants and a smoker and the menus in Chochenyo. And it's just an exciting place. And when it's all set up, we have baskets on display and our traditional aesthetics and our salts and all of those natural raw ingredients. So some of the menu it's always going to rotate based on what's seasonal and what's available so for an example right now it's fall time so it's acorn time we're in prime acorn time right now and during this time we're going to have a lot of acorn heavy dishes such as traditional um, um, shetnin which is acorn bread um, we're going to have acorn soup we're going to have 
uh, as well as things that that we can get is that um, that that are still accessible and and relatively um, um, still um, easy for us to find. Like we're going to still have chia seed cakes and native teas and Lewis's famous acorn flower brownies. We'll have our um, panole seed cakes and um, large native green salads of watercress and blackberries, sorrel and uh, elderberry. Um, Right now we have available um, a lot of nuts and so there's going to be a lot of hazelnut-based mills and um, later um, sweet pignon nuts are going to be infused in our coffee that we're going to French press here as well as hand-pressed walnut milk that has bay laurel seeping in it. So that was incredible to hear of all those delicious foods and I, you do a lot with hazelnuts and they're hard to gather. They're in those little prickly skins and then those nuts are so hard. I mean they're one of my favorite nuts. They're so delicious and you do a lot of incredible things things with hazelnuts so what what is um what is your relationship you have some good patches you don't have to reveal them to us but you must also buy some right because I think the native ones are getting very very endangered they often are in forests that have sudden oak death and with the drought um, they don't seem to produce as many nuts um, has been my experience over in the west more in Coast Miwok territory but I'm curious if you've been having some of those issues seeing the hazelnuts um, the volume decrease a little bit yeah thank you for for asking that because one of the ways that we have to make these foods accessible on a regular basis means sometimes we have to buy things commercially and we do these things intentionally because we also don't want to over exploit or over gather in areas that are already threatened you know again that responsibility means that we also have to be good stewards, meaning that we are um, handling these areas in responsible ways. We're managing these areas in responsible ways. But we also know that these areas as well, in many ways, they, they manage our work as well. So there's that reciprocity that's there right there. And knowing that, um, you know, that, that we come from these areas, it's in our best interest to make sure that these areas are thriving. So that means that sometimes we have to get things commercially. And what we do in these cases is that every aspect of the framework that we have for gathering, if we're gathering in our village sites, that exact same framework has to go in when we're gathering things commercially as well. You know, and I prefer to say gathering commercially than purchasing because, you know, these these um, these walnuts that we gather in the store, the hazelnuts, they're... They also, they, they come from a plant that's living. Like, they're not like these these dead things that, that we just buy, you know, and that we can just discard and forget about. But they're, they come from living things, you know, and because of that, you know, they also have life as well. So being able to, to make sure that whether we're, you know, seed beating in a patch of chia or whether we're we're kind of squatting down and pouring chia seeds into <laughs> our bag for at the bulk bin, that exact same responsibility has to be there, meaning that you have to tell that chia who you are in relationship to it. You know, you need to be um, only taking what you need. You know, you, you need to explain what it's going to be used for, you know. And these things, they're they're not just things that 
that go only when you're gathering outside, but they're they they should be consistent when you're as well gathering commercially. You know, when you're in a store at Berkeley Bowl or whatever, and those things matter. And so, you know, we want this value to be able to um, to stay in our family, and people do make sure that they that they keep this value alive and. The more that we do this, it also is able to keep our culture in a way that's that's modern while keeping those traditional values alive in contemporary times. Beautifully said. I think that also the fact that we don't shun commercially available chia or hazelnuts mm-hmm. also allows these foods to be as accessible as possible to our families. Mm-hmm. You know, for no fault of our own, our landscapes are changed. They're very urban here in the East Bay and in Monterey. Um, it's a little r- more rural up in the upper Carmel Valley, luckily. But for no fault of our own, it's hard to find these things. Like you are saying, these are endangered plant communities. Mm-hmm. And when we can go to those places, they're special places. And so when we gather hazelnuts or walnuts, those are treasures. And we don't want our family to feel like that's the only way that they can have these traditional foods Mm -hmm. done. So to make it acceptable and to make it just as celebrated um, is important so that they can go home and continue to eat this way. Yeah, and that whole ability, that whole... um, idea of accessibility is what we're aiming for and that's why we do this work directly for our families and for our our people is because um, we know that the more that people are empowered with our traditional foods the better connected we are to our traditional culture and the more that we're able to to do this work with our people to revive our food traditions our language our stories, our religious practices, you know, all of these ways and our connections to the land, all of these things that come back and straightened and get strengthened. We're able to and and I also want to say that not everything has to come back. There's a lot of a lot of our identity that's already that's still just been naturally passed on to one generation to another. But a lot of the specifics that do need to be revived, those things after we get one back it gets linked into another and then into another and then collectively it's like we get a lot in a in a in a time where we're seeing one victory after another and it feels like our young people right now especially are growing up in a world where they're not seeing many losses they're seeing more victories right now than losses mm-hmm. and you know we think about how exciting that is because you know there's this tired old narrative about like Ohlone people just kind of like being defeated you know and like that's not true like we were never defeated and we never we never left our places you know we we never left our homes and the fact that we're still living in these places reviving these old ways that were able to be carried on by our elders and our ancestors is a testament to all of that you know it's a testament to our strength to the power of our communities, but also to how permanent these ways are and how they'll never go away, you know? And I, I think a lot about the redwoods in our hills here in, in the Oakland Hills. You know, when people came in, they they knocked down as many of those redwoods that they could, but the redwoods grew back, you know? And then they knocked them down a second time and the redwoods grew back. And it's like those redwoods are in an area that we directly come from as well. And many of our villages are right there, as well as in Lewis's area in Carmel. And, you know, the the story of those redwoods, it's in very much 
it's I think about our story a lot, you know, like people coming and trying to knock us down, you know, but then we just rise back up again, you know, and it's like, you know, you, you can't take out, you know, you can't remove us like there's there's no there's it's it, it can't happen, you know, and, and we're seeing that again strengthened and we'll know that the next generation will be empowered with all of this as well. And this will just keep going. You both demonstrate so well uh, that Native culture is resilient. I mean, the resiliency of the Ohlone peoples, like you said, you're still here. You never went away. You're continuing. And the resiliency um, and to be able to thrive in a modern context and show that to young people and to other people is so empowering. So thank you for that commitment in that work. And uh, in closing, I, I wonder if there's any other thing you want to share about your Ohlone traditions, your work with the cafe um, for our listeners um, to kind of wrap up um, this, this seed podcast with you. Well, I think it's important that the cafe here, Cafe Ohlone, is this space that is a safe space that belongs to our families. And while it's a public-facing part of this work, it represents all of our homes. It represents our private homes, but it also represents our village places. We've brought all of that into this space. And it exists for our families. It exists to be this place where we celebrate our living Ohlone cultures. It's this place of love for one another, for the love that we share for our family and for the love that we have for our people from before. All of these things Vince and I want to bring here to Cafe Ohlone. That's very beautifully said. And you're right, that, you know, this place, it's a place of love and a place of a lot of, a lot of just hope, hope for what we have possible and in a space to reclaim something that that we know just should have never left and it's righting a wrong and it's able to correct something that that we've been lacking for for too long um i would like to say that cafe aloni will be open in about two weeks so mid-october will be open thursdays fridays and saturdays the menu uh, will change seasonally based on what's available around in our homelands and we will also have limited hours because as indigenous people we have to do a lot at once and so we both do a lot of work directly with our communities on many other aspects of the cultural revival and because of that we're going to um, post our hours every sunday on our mak amham twitter um, i would also like to say that in this space we want a lot of meaningful dialogue you know we want we say boundary-breaking dialogue that's going to result in change and help people understand our story better. But for our Ohlone people, we want our people to know that this is a safe space and it's a space that we know we've been lacking, that we need. And as a child, I, I always wondered what our food tasted like. And then I would often wish that we had a place where we can go and eat those foods, you know, and now we have one. And so for all the, the young people out there and the elders and everybody else, um, it's for, it's, it's for those reasons, you know, to bring back and to make sure that, that it stays, you know, and that it's lasting and sustainable. Um, 
finally in Chochenyo language and in my family's language we say intro mak rotesin mak ammataka mak ammasin khorshe amkham which means when we're in our restaurants we'll always eat good food <laughs> beautiful thank you so much and i will say um chimiguich niji thank you my friends uh, it was delicious to talk with you today. All right. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for all your work. Yeah. It was delicious as well. <laughs> <laughs>